HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. For more information, visit meusa.com. This week on Meet in 3, we're exploring the intersection between food, agriculture, and competition. Learn how a chicken raising contest in the 1940s led to the poultry industry we have today. And they were going to run a contest and try and develop what they would call the chicken tomorrow. We'll also venture into the world of agricultural video games, where a new set of tractors is making a lot of fans happy. The biggest addition to 19 was the John Deere's. That's what everyone was hyped for. And we pay a visit to a group of Indian restaurants that aren't on the friendliest of terms. Usually they wait for my restaurant, but after long wait, they go to next door or downstairs. But this is how they do business. They completely copy whatever we do. Embrace your competitive spirit and be the first to listen to new Meet and 3 episodes by subscribing now. That's Meet plus sign T-H-R-E-E. Available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Inside Julia's Kitchen, the podcast, the Julia Child Foundation for Gastronomy and the Culinary Arts. I'm your host, Todd Shulkin, the Foundation's Executive Director. Our show takes you inside the Foundation's world to meet the talented people we have the good fortune of learning from all the time. On today's show, we welcome food writing icon, best-selling author, and former Gourmet Magazine Editor-in-Chief, Ruth Reichel. In today's episode, we're going to talk to Ruth about her latest memoir, Save Me the Plums, the secret to good food writing, and oh, as always, we'll hear Ruth's Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. As regular listeners know, we always launch the conversation with an inspiration from Julia. In her cookbook, The Way to Cook, Julia wrote, Dining with one's friends and beloved family is certainly one of life's primal and most innocent delights, one that is both soul-satisfying and eternal. Boy, Julia really could string together a great sentence. While perhaps she's best remembered for being so entertaining on TV, her ability to communicate well on the page was just as strong. And yet another way Julia inspired and influenced her fans and fellow writers. As we often discuss, Julia saw food food writing on equal footing with any other form of writing. Her commitment to that really helped advance the realm. Someone who epitomizes that same commitment to capturing the importance of good cooking and eating on the page is our guest today, one of America's foremost writers and thinkers about food, Ruth Reichel. She's just published what is, by my count, the 10th book she's either authored or edited, and her fifth memoir. You may have already read Tender at the Bone, Comfort Me with Apples, Garlic and Sapphires, and For You, Mom, Finally, her novel Delicious, or her memoiry cookbook, My Kitchen Year. As a James Beard Award-winning journalist, Ruth was editor-in-chief of Gourmet Magazine for a decade, and before that, restaurant critic for the New York Times, and before that, 
critic at the Los Angeles Times. She now lives and writes in upstate New York. Ruth joined the foundation at the third Julia Child Award Gala to speak to restaurateur Danny Meyer's accomplishments. You can watch a video of her tribute to Danny on the Julia Child Facebook page. Go to videos. Clear from Ruth's example, when you've led an interesting life, there's quite a bit to share. We're excited to have her in the studio today to do exactly that. Welcome to the podcast, Ruth. It's great to be here. So I really enjoyed reading Save Me the Plums, and I think it really takes us behind the scenes at Condé Nast, which is something I was always dying to know about. And you do it in a really insightful and entertaining way. I was curious, though, coming away from it, what did you love most about working at Condé Nast? What did you never get used to? Um, Well, you know, magazine making is the most collaborative work you could possibly have. And I loved my job so much that I probably would have done it for free. And, (laughs) you know, what I loved was that... um, they allowed me inside this very corporate culture to essentially run the magazine in a very non-hierarchical way. And I don't think that very many institutions like like Condé Nast would have allowed that to happen. And And that's what I really loved. I mean, I went to work so joyfully. And, um, my former, creative director said after it was all over he said you know Ruth I think that was the last fun job and Mm. you know so there's a lot in the book about you know the crazy excess the operatic excess of Condé Nast and you know how we all the entire staff went to Paris to do a Paris issue and that was all really fun but for me what I ended up missing was none of that, not the clothing allowance or, you know, the drivers. What I missed was that joy of working with a group of talented people. Well, and I think Condé Nast has always had this lore for some of the Cy Newhouse eccentricities and stories and Anna Wintour frivolities. But then at, at the heart, I think one of the things that's made people fascinated with it is that it, it is, has allowed just what you're describing, this kind of really profound investment, at least at times, in editorial prowess and letting the creative really drive it and, and with the view that that would actually make it commercially successful. Is that, is that kind of what you captured in your experience there as a real positive? Absolutely. I mean, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was I thought that Cy was really the last publisher in America who genuinely believed that if you gave people a quality product, they would pay for it. I mean, he had this flight of genius where he said, I'm going to get the most creative people I can find and give them their head. And I thought that that moment in American publishing should be celebrated. I also felt like the way you described it, because I think everyone was very shocked when Gourmet was folded, partly because of the success that you'd had and partly because of its storied history and partly because of the time in the food revolution. But I felt like what you, without maybe laying it out or even stating it, but kind of pieced together side by side, that a little bit, it was like a tripartite or a trifecta of not just the changes in the print world, but that given its its sort of category in media, that with the financial crisis, it just became a perfect storm. Is that what you meant to kind of come, bring together? Yeah, I mean, that was absolutely... I mean, one of the things that I wanted to note was that the magazine business model is kind of a crazy model. You know, I mean, the <laughs> idea is that you don't ask people to actually pay for the magazine. I mean, you can get subscriptions to magazines for, you know, a fraction of what they actually cost to produce. Mm-hmm. And that you then um, pay for it with advertising. And the revolution, the digital revolution, sort of made all that go away. And um, one of the things that didn't happen fast enough at Condé Nast was, I think, you know, Cy, for all his genius, could not foresee what a digital future would look like. 
Well, not many people could. I mean, I'm even struck by looking back at, at this, and we talked about it a, a little bit la- last episode, talking about cookbook.com and all the evolutions of, I feel like we're finally moving back. You know, the internet was founded on this, pr- founded might be the wrong word, um, uh, promoted and expanded by a group of people who who really were basing on everything on the internet is free, which really destroyed the journalism model as it moved to be more freely distributed, right? Because before that, it wasn't free. It was never free. Right, exactly. And um, But, you know, I mean, the people who survived it were really the people who were the quickest to see what this revolution meant. I mean, we still don't really know where it's going. We're still in the middle of it. But it it takes enormous imagination to look at this incredible new tool that's come into the world and, you know, try and imagine what it's going to be like 10 years down the road. Yeah. Well, let's pick up on that later. I want to stick with with, with some of the, at least for a reader, it was all (laughs) enjoyable. It was probably slightly (laughs) stressful for you at times, at, at a lot of times. So, but in that, I think you were very candid about that, and I was also struck by your candor about the process by which you you got the job, and you talked a lot about your um, fears about whether you're really the right person and being truly qualified. And I, I thought it might really be nice if if you'd be so kind as to to read a a passage from the book that will give readers a taste and and kind of uh, demonstrate that. Okay, so I am the restaurant critic of the New York Times, and I get a call from. Someone I've literally never heard of, and he says, I'm James Truman, and I go, who? And he says, I'm the editorial uh, director of Condé Nast, and I hope you will come meet me for tea. And then he did a whole thing about how we didn't want anyone to see us, and I didn't know what he was talking about, but (laughs) I was kind of curious. um, And I, um, I didn't even really, you know, get that, he was looking for such a big job. I thought he just kind of wanted to meet me. Um, Truman flashed me an impish smile. That's why I called. I thought it was interesting. He's talking about an article I wrote called um, Why I Disapprove of What I Do, which I'd written in the New York Times Magazine. I especially like the part where you said going out to eat used to be like going to the opera, but that these days it's more like going to the movies. I thought then that you would make an excellent editor-in-chief for Gourmet. I dropped my spoon and it clattered against the thin porcelain. We both watched it vibrate against the saucer. Shocked, I said, editor-in-chief? What did you think? Well, I certainly didn't think you'd offer me a job like that. He grimaced. I'd raised my voice. I was thinking you probably wanted a new restaurant critic. He looked so pained that I realized the man in charge of 19 magazines didn't hire restaurant critics. He'd expected me to know he had something major in mind. But how could I possibly have imagined this? To cover my embarrassment, I asked a question. How many employees does Gourmet have? I don't really know. He waved a hand at an invisible army of editors. Sixty or so. Sixty? The thought was terrifying. I couldn't possibly manage 60 people. Everybody has issues with the boss, and all I want to do is please people. I'm no manager, I told him, and I certainly couldn't handle a staff of 60. Why not? You might have to clean house, get rid of everyone, and bring in all your own people. I almost laughed. Where did he think I'd find these people of mine? He must have read my face. Human resources would help he said reassuringly. That's what they're there for. Clearly he wasn't getting it. Then there's the matter of budgets. I almost pulled out my checkbook to show him what a mess it was. I'm terrible at managing money. What is Gourmet's budget anyway? I could get you that figure, but that's not really your concern. He sounded nonchalant. You don't suppose Anna Wintour worries about budgets, do you? You'll have a managing editor to deal with money matters. I didn't like his use of the future tense. He seemed to consider this a done deal. Didn't anyone say no to Condé Nast? I suppose, I said, with all the sarcasm I could muster. This managing editor will be one of the new people I bring in after I clean house. Exactly. He had no idea who he was dealing with. 
I'd never fired a single person, even when I, I was an editor at the Los Angeles Times, and I certainly was not about to start now. I might be the restaurant critic of the New York Times, but at heart, I was still a 60s rebel with a deep mistrust of corporate ways. My philosophy of management, if I had such a thing, would have gone like this. Everybody's good at something. You just have to figure out what that is. I stood up. I'm flattered you thought of me. I'm certainly not the obvious choice, and I wish I could do it. But if you really want Gourmet to be the best it possibly can be, you need someone with experience. Well, first of all, I think, I think that's great to share with uh, listeners just how, how lovely the writing is and how enjoyable it is to read and how you really take us into these moments in your life. But I, I was also struck by there, there's been a lot of talk today about imposter syndrome, especially amongst professional women. And to some degree, I think that's kind of a description of one. But after all this time and reflection and having done the job, is that now, you know, something you really feel like you put behind you? Or is it something that never leaves everybody? I think it, I don't know about other people. It will certainly never leave me. Um, you know, I, I do have this, you know, this feeling all the time that at heart, I'm just a fraud. And um, I, I don't know where it comes from, but I don't think it goes away. And do you, do you think it's more a personal? You 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 certainly write about your your mother's issues of mental illness. You've been candid about that. Um, my grandmother was same generation. It was also bipolar. And 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 it it. Do you think it's a very personal thing, or do you think there is a big societal construct around that, especially for professional women? I wish I knew an answer to that. Um, I think it's probably both. Um, you know, I I think. Um, probably my mother's illness had a lot to do with it. Um, a lot to do with this, you know, sense that no, I mean, you know, no matter what I've done, it, it, it never was hard enough, good enough, um, right enough. Um, and I think it's also, um, I think women are still not brought up to really believe in themselves. And, um, you know, I, I certainly hope it'll be different for my grandchildren. Yeah, no, I think that, that, that all of that rings true. But I, I think on the one hand, it's, I, I'm sure it must be sort of daunting to people to look at your accomplishments and hear that you still feel that way. But then at the same time, reassuring that a lot of people feel that way. And I often even wonder if the most successful people, it's in a way helpful that the more you feel that maybe you have something to prove or you may be a fraud, the, the more you, you try to succeed not to, whereas if you felt more 100% confident, you might just lay down or retire. Well, I think it's also something to do with being a writer. I mean, I think every writer faces the blank page and goes, you know, whatever made me think I can write? Um, all my good writing is behind me. Um, I mean, I, I think there's no fear quite like looking at that page and thinking, I can't do this, I can't do this. Well, and that's interesting, too, because I think that is less gender-specific. I do think you hear as many male writers um, as female express that, maybe often in different realms. Like, you you talk very eloquently about the, the opportunity to hire David Foster Wallace, but also the tragedy in his life that, despite his talent, he felt or had issues. I mean, it's it's extraordinary to me to think of someone like David Foster Wallace um, feeling so horrible that he didn't want to go on living. I mean, you know, with that kind of talent, it's, it's just, you know, astonishing to me. Um, although, you know, it's not astonishing to me that I would feel that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, hope, hopefully uh, those, those, those things are maybe they soften with accomplishment, but, um, I mean, do you feel like it's something that drives you to do more? No, I mean, I just, um, what drives me, I mean, I think I, I like work. I honestly believe that not working is the worst thing that can possibly happen to anyone. I mean, I think if you don't work, if you don't create, if you don't keep moving, you die a little bit every day. And, um, I think that's what keeps me moving forward. Um, that 
um, there's so much to do. There's so much to talk about. There's, you know, there's so much in the world that needs fixing. And um, as a, you know, living, breathing human being, you want to be part of it. So d- does that mean that, you know, I've, I've listed all the books in addition to all the, all the writing, professional writing you've done. Do you, do you feel there, 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 there's much more to come? Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I have a contract to write two more novels for Random House. And, um, you know, when they're done, um, you know, I, I will keep writing until I can't do it anymore. So the upcoming stuff is, is, is in, back in the realm of fiction. Um, the, yeah, the next two, but I also, I mean, I have a lot of, I have a lot of other things in the works. Um, and, you know, and the other thing is that at this point in my life, one of the things I want to do is pay it forward. And, um, I'm probably going to start teaching, um, you know, I mean, there's a whole generation of, you know, younger writers who I would like to be helpful to. Well, well, let's talk about that in the in the context. I had said we'd come back to it. I was curious. We um, we did in over the course of the last couple seasons of the first year of the podcast, we did a series on talking to both present and former food magazine editor in chiefs about the future of um, food media in print. And so, I, I wanted to get your your view of that. We we touched on a little bit, but I think it also relates to the future of professional food writing. And because food journalism for newspapers and magazines was always, to me, such an important and critical and and at one time large training ground for professional food writers. But it, it it's become so fragmented, if not smaller. Well, you know, I, I think it, there's a really interesting future for food magazines. And I think, you know, one of the things that you have to think about is what does print do? I mean, if I had a magazine today, I would, I mean, all the, every service piece would go online, you know, I mean, all the, the front matter in the magazine, all of that would be online. And then you would think about like, what can you do in print that you can't do uh, digitally? Mm-hmm. And you know, that's where you take it. So, I mean, one of the things we did at Gourmet that it really bothers me that nobody else is doing this now is mm-hmm. we did these really lavish photo shoots. And I thought of them as something that people took to bed to dream on, basically. That, mm. you know, they would open this up and they would dream themselves into these gorgeous landscapes. And, you know, we we got more and more fanciful. I mean, we really... Um, we really tried pushing the envelope on those. And um, I think those are really important for people. Um, and I wish people were doing more of those because I think that they really have something to offer just in the way of aspiration. You know, you can you can make this this kind of a beautiful meal. And what most food magazines are doing now is they're, they, it seems to me that they're, trying very hard to imitate digital and they're doing things that are like clickbait and little quick moments and you know close-ups of food instead of um, really you know using their imaginations and asking people to use their imaginations mm. and of course I mean the other thing that um, food magazines can do which we tried hard to do was investigative now that has gone out of the realm of food magazines into, you know, newspapers do important investigations about food issues and some magazines are doing them. Um, the Atlantic has Ted Genoways doing wonderful stuff and um, The New Yorker is doing some of that. But Yeah, ironically so, yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, there there is a lot um, that really needs the kind of resources that a good food magazine can have where you send someone out. For instance, what we did with um, Barry Estabrook and said, you know, go down to Florida and spend a month with the tomato pickers and, you know, talk about, you know, their fight for social justice. And, um, you know, it takes resources to do that and it takes a lot of space. And um, that's the kind of thing that I think works better in print than online. So do you kind of foresee a, f- a future where 
print magazine is sustained, but in a much more specialized and where the subscriptions aren't given away for $12.99, they're $130 a year in, in the way that kind of more niche but very upscale publications, I mean, could you envision that being part of the digital future? I absolutely could. And in fact, before Gourmet folded, and this is not in the book, but I did go to my bosses at Condé Nast and beg them to change the model. I mean, I said, let's stop depending exclusively on advertising. Let's ask people to actually pay for the magazine. Let's ask people to pay a subscription of, say, $65 a year. Um, we will probably lose two-thirds. I mean, we had about a, a, a million subscribers, so we'll lose two-thirds of them. But the, say, 300,000 people who are left will be very valuable to advertisers uh, because they will be truly committed. So we'll still have some advertising. Um, and um, their reason for not going with that model was startling to me because they really, they really explored it. Mm. And the reason they said it, we couldn't do it was because we had so many people who had like five-year subscriptions that mm. for like four years, we would still have to continue printing a million magazines a month, even though we were only getting income for 300000 Um, I still thought they should have made that investment, and mm. I think it would have been a wise investment. Mm. Yeah, no, it was almost like they were choked by the longevity of Gourmet's success and and how the sort of long tail of that old business model. Right, exactly. But um, I do think that um, there will be somewhere down the road, somebody will make a print and digital publication that uses the best, best of both and that people will pay for. Yeah, I mean, Lucky Peach sort of started down that path. I'm not sure they had embraced all the artistry that you're talking about that I, I do agree with you really. Um, print has a, a sort of advantage at. But but did you did you start to, did that give you hope? Or I, yes, I loved, or I loved Lucky Peach. And, you know, one of the things they did, which is another thing that I think a really good print food magazine should be doing, they did all these special issues. Um, mm. And, um, you know, Peter really thought out of the box, and I'm very excited. You know, he's about to be the um, food editor of the L.A. Times, and I'm really interested to see what he's going to do with that. Um, yeah, I know the new L.A. Times is like the first hope in quite a while after all of that that churn that maybe there there's a, a return to to investing in that kind of food medium yeah and to thinking about you know to hiring creative people and saying you know you know what what is what what do we need right now you know what 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 can we do that will be inspiring i mean this is such a moment in american food um you know i mean i've been writing about food for 50 years and i never could have imagined this landscape when i started out i mean there were a handful of us who cared about food julia child being one of them but, you know, in, in the 60s and 70s, it, it was, you know, it was not considered um, an important issue. And that has changed so much. And it's such an exciting thing to watch um, food become part of popular culture and, you know, watch an entire generation really think about food in interesting ways and, you know, really understand that eating is an ethical act and that their food choices really matter. And we are at an exciting time, and we're going to take a break, but we'll come right back to talk, Ruth, more about exactly that and about being a great food writer. We'll be right back. Stay with us. Today's program was brought to you by Emmy Cheese, specialty cheese from Switzerland made with heart and passion. Since the early 1900s, Emmy has been a passionate supporter of farmers, cheesemakers, and family tradition. They believe in sustainable agriculture and respect for the people, land, and animals that make their business possible. Remaining dedicated to tradition, they strive to lead the industry in innovation, ensuring they bring you only the highest quality, best-tasting cheese from Switzerland. 
Emmy is best known for importing more than 80% of Swiss Gruyere into the United States, but that's not to overshadow their other specialty cheeses, including Kottbalk cave-aged cheeses, Appenzeller, Tete de Moine, and traditional Emmentaler. For more information, visit emmyusa.com. Welcome back. We're talking to award-winning food writer Ruth Reichel, author of the new memoir, Save Me the Plums, about her tenure as editor-in-chief at Gourmet Magazine. So before we come back to what we were talking about before the break in terms of food and popular culture and how really food is having this big moment, both sort of on the plate and culturally, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about um, you as a writer. And I like this is a favorite question of mine to wrestle with, as I think Julia did, which is when you think of yourself as a writer, is it a writer, as the British say, full stop? Or do you say, oh, no, I'm just a food writer? Well, uh, my definition has changed enormously. When I first started writing, I definitely thought of myself as a writer, not a food writer, because in those days it was just a food writer. Mm. But today it isn't just a food writer. It's very proudly, I am a writer and food is my major subject. And I'm proud of that. And, you know, proud to have... um, you know, had um, a place in this um, resurrection of food writing as something that is respectable and not just, you know, something for the women's pages. And I think where that just a food writer um, moniker came from is that um, in many newspapers, the people who were food writers in the women's sections weren't very good. And yeah, it was not prioritized as terms of you you hire as good people for that as for any other department or subject. Exactly. And, um, you know, it was kind of when I took over the food section of the L.A. Times, I mean, there were people writing in there who, you know, were not native English speakers and, you know, knew a lot about food but really didn't know much about writing. And, um, you know, one of the things that we did was start bringing in really good writers um, and saying, you know, write about food. So do you think that's one of the evolutions that where it used to be sort of a, a, a slightly derogatory or or lower order that now it's it's much easier to hold your head high and just say, I am a food writer, that's a special, unique, great thing, and it doesn't have the same connotations that it did 30 years ago? Absolutely. I mean, one of the things that happened, food writing used to be timid and polite and... Um, you know, the image of a food... I mean, MFK Fisher used her initials because she didn't want people to think that she was a woman. Um, specifically because food was her subject, she thought, you know, they'll they'll pay more attention if they think it's a man writing this. Mm-hmm. Um, even though she wrote very feminine prose, <laughs> in fact. I mean, it was muscular, but it was, you know, very much from a woman's point of view. Um, and, you know, today, uh, you've got people who are really bold writers and, um, you know, use, uh, you know, all kinds of very impolite terms. I mean, it, it has, it has come out of its shell, food writing, you know, it's, um, it's, it's become gutsy and, um, you know, whether it's men or women writing, it takes on serious topics. It's not about, you know, a, a teaspoon of salt anymore. On that note, I'm going to read a little something. So, mushroom bisque arrived in a porcelain dish. In the center, an island of foie gras slowly melted into a sensuous puddle. Veal came surrounded by a garland of interwoven vegetables as delicate as a filigree necklace. Tiny gnocchi were scattered through it like little pearls. Now, to me, that that's I'm lifting from part of Save Me the Plums, um, and that, to me, is quintessential Ruth Reichel. And I wanted to ask you, um, as someone who really enjoys talking and working with writers, do you spend a lot of time crafting these intricate descriptions, or are they the kind of thing, or are they just you, and they actually kind of just flow out right onto the page? That 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 kind of description is is really not hard for me. I mean, it it really does come very naturally to me, uh, and I try not to do it too often. <laughs> 
I mean, because well, it's I something you can hide quite... behind as a writer. You know, you can you can make it all very pretty. <laughs> but I think I think I think it, it's definitely a kind of signature quality of what you write about, and I think especially early on, as we were just talking about, you were an early person writing this sort of eloquently and lovingly and, and maybe slightly flamboyantly about food, but but that's both set you apart and got people thinking about food writing as an art rather than just something perfunctory. Well, I mean, this is what I, I honestly believe. Um, I believe in pleasure. I believe that we, as human beings, will all be better off if we um, paid more attention to pleasure. And I think one of the easiest ways to get pleasure out of life is through food. And I want people to notice this, to revel in the joy of eating. And, um, you know, I, I genuinely think that um, paying attention to those moments makes life easier. Well, it's interesting to contrast that with the sort of Instagramming of food. and right. People who are really into food, a lot of them cannot get through a dinner without photographing it, which to me, I get the idea of um, preserving the moment and a lot of it is very beautiful but it also kind of removes you from the enjoyment it's almost like doing a photo shoot rather than having dinner and in in some ways what what your writing is like the opposite of a picture is a thousand words so do you have like are you a, don't mind instagramming a food or do you do you agree with what i'm saying or where, where do you think that lies i have just started on an instagram but I have to say, you know, I am one of those people who never carried a camera around and always thought, like, you know, you can, you can hide behind your camera when you're traveling or you can just be in the moment. And I do Instagram, but I kind of, I kind of hate it. I mean, I, I, I just want to enjoy it. And if I'm going to convey it, I would rather do it through words than through this very easy, oh, I'm going to take a snapshot. No, I know. I think I think it's so hard to, you know, especially if you have the privilege of traveling to amazing places or dining at very special places to, to take yourself out of that moment and, and be behind the camera. And it, it, it's such a, I think, a difficult um, call because both have their merits. But I, I would say I'm with you. I lean toward less documentation and more just personal experience in the I, moment. I mean, I have to say I love Twitter because Twitter to me is the epitome of what a writer can do. It's this idea of trying to be very concise, convey a snapshot of a moment through a few very carefully chosen characters. And in fact, I think you can put someone in that moment with you, um, which you can't do with a picture. You, in a picture is you're just showing it to them. But... Um, Twitter is to me a little bit like radio. It's very intimate. It's in your head. Mm. And it's, it's a genuine sharing. Well, I think that's interesting, too, because you're right. When you're tweeting, you're writing the characters, there's an interpretation. Whereas there is to a certain degree with photography, but if you're doing filters or, or whatnot or making a comment. But you're right. Just a picture, it, it, it speaks to the, the viewer as they want to see it. Whereas like a, a tweet speaks to the viewer as you want them to understand it. Yes, exactly. Um, you've yes. mediated it. You've mediated the experience. Yeah, or, or curated it. Or curated it, yes. So um, while we could keep going on this, I, I, I was struck by something that um, I, I think I read that you said it rather than you wrote it, but that, and you've touched on it at the beginning in terms of food as part of culture right now and the moment that we're in. And, and you had noted that, you know, the American food landscape has really come into its own, you know, that it's no longer a a desert of, of if you want good food you have to go to France it's it's quite the opposite and there's all of this revolution that people like Julia or Alice Waters were really had a hand in but that means as we've matured and we have a great amount of plenty the you said the most pressing issue you think in the food world now is social justice so i wanted to talk to you about that what what can we should we do about that or what are you looking at being the the key things to address at least in this moment uh, I, I think, you know, we have to ask when we, whenever we buy food, we have to ask um, who picked this food? How were they paid? Um, are they legal? Um, are they vulnerable? Uh, when you go to a restaurant, you should really care about what's happening in the back. You know, um, are 
the people who wash the dishes, um, how are they being treated by the establishment? Um, interestingly to me, um, and I don't think that restaurants have gotten enough credit for this, but you know, in a in a world full of Me Too, um, and you know, the media world, the corporate world, I mean, it's endemic throughout society. And I think, you know, restaurants are trying harder than just about any other segment of society to change that, to make restaurants a good place to work. Um, but we need that to extend to farms, to meatpacking plants. Um, and, you know, if, if tomorrow everyone in America decided that they did not want to eat animals that had been raised in confinement animal facilities, they would go away overnight. I mean, we actually have the ability as consumers to make these changes, and it's time that we did. And I, I think, you know, certainly if you're more affluent, you there's a certain amount of guilt because you can make those choices and, and it's easier to make those freely. But then it's like, is each individual choice enough? Do you think, do you think that it all can be accomplished with baby steps by each individual consumer? Or do you think we need some kind of more, um, I know you're a product of Berkeley radical movement that really has a kind of smack sudden well, change effect? It would be great if we had a radical movement, but that would involve probably changing government policy. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, I, I think we need to remember that we ended pretty much ended you know, ubiquitous cigarette smoking in this country, not through any kind of government thing. It was just through education. I mean, I grew up in a world where everybody smoked, where when you went to a dinner party, there were cigarettes on the table. Um, and I don't know anybody who smokes anymore. And that isn't because the government put a ban on smoking. Mm. Um we so can, you, so we you can think it comes changes. from just people being more informed and changing their own behavior? Well, well, I think one of the things that made smoking stop was um, there were big initiatives um, to teach children about the evils of smoking. Mm. And I think children went home and said to their parents, you can't smoke anymore. Mm. I mean, I, th I think that was huge. And I think, you know, it, you know, teaching children about food is enormously important. Mm. And I mean, I think that's how it happens. And I think it's happening slowly. I mean, we have a generation of kids who really don't want to eat tortured animals and are willing not, mm. to, not to eat meat rather than eat tortured animals, um, who do care about what's happening out in the fields. And I think, I think these things will change. I just wish they would change faster. Well, that's interesting what you're saying. I mean, I do think I would add that lots of people dying of lung cancer did help with people's personal education about smoking because that took time. But I see the parallel with the obesity epidemic, which is, you know, there was education slash propaganda to fight, you know, people to stop smoking. Some of it was government led and some of it was very health led. And the I could see that as part of the anti-obesity movement, in, in one of the big biggest factors, right, is educating people about what they're eating, what's in what they're eating, and why it might be doing things to their body. Do you, do you kind of see maybe that will be the, the equivalent of the, the change in smoking? Yeah, I mean, and it's not just obesity. I mean, it's the allergy epidemic, um, mm. you know, which also, I mean, everybody's pretty convinced that somehow it's related to the changes in the way our food is produced. And, um, you know, I think that, you know, the asthma epidemic, I mean, I think, you know, all of these things are going to ultimately change the way people eat. So I think I would like to, to end our, our conversation before we get your Julia moment after the break on, on a more more sort of that, that got pretty heavy. <laughs> sorry. And, yes, um, it is. I'm sorry. <laughs> but, I, but I think very important and certainly a topic. And I was curious what where, where your focus is on that. So that I'm glad we talked about it. I, I was going to ask you because obviously um, in the memoir, there's some really lovely, there's kind of a parallel of doing Paris um, full Condé Nast style and doing Paris again budget style, which is both uh, very romantic and, and, and lovely. And I was curious, do you, do you still have favorite places that you want to get back to when you go to Paris? 
Oh, I love Paris. I, I sad to say I have not been there in a couple of years. But, um, you know, on my last trip, we went to like all these, you know, new restaurants in the 11th. And um, they were so great. And I, I, I sort of love um, the change away from three-star eating and um, the French embrace of other foods, which, you know, I went to French school and growing up, um, spent a lot of time in France. And in those days, when you went to France, you ate French food. Today, you can eat all kinds of food. And, you know, there are all these young Americans who have great restaurants in France. And, um, and um, you know, Japanese restaurants. And it's, it's exciting. I mean, it's just exciting to see the changes in Paris. And, you know, I, I really want to say that, I mean, I used Paris, the, these two bookended Paris issues that we did, because it was really such an important lesson for me that doing Paris on a budget was so much more fun than doing three-star Paris. Um, that I realized in that trip that um, when you travel in limousines and stay in first-class hotels and only go to high-end restaurants, you miss the life of the country. And that, you know, when you're wandering around and eating on a budget and taking the metro, you become part of the country, and it's so much richer. Well, that that's that's definitely, I think, good food for thought. And um, for those who haven't yet read it, they're, they're lovely um, journeys in, in both elements in, in Save Me the Plums. So let us know, are you a Ruth Reichel fan? Let us know which of her books, articles, or issue even of Gourmet Magazine has really stayed with you. Send us an email or even a voice memo to contact at juliachildfoundation.org. And after the next short break, Ruth is going to share her Julia moment. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Are you enjoying our podcast? Heritage Radio Network has lots more. I'm Ethan Frisch. And I'm Jenny Dorsey. And together we host Why Food, a podcast about innovators, career changers, and entrepreneurs who are changing the face of food. How did these folks decide to hit the brakes, start over, and become inspiring chefs, entrepreneurs, farmers, and activists they are today? Browse episodes of Why Food wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. When you flip anything, you really, you just have to have the courage of your convictions, particularly if it's sort of a loose mass like this. No, that didn't go very well. See, when I flipped it, I didn't, I didn't have the courage to do it the way I should have. But you can always pick it up, and if you're alone in the kitchen, who is going to see? From Julia's immortal words, we move into our last segment, which we call the Julia moment. Here's when we ask our guests to share their favorite Julia memory moment or how she's inspired them in their career. Ruth, what's your Julia moment? Okay, well, let me start by saying Julia was enormously generous to me as a young writer and sent me notes about things I'd written. But my favorite Julia moment is... um, hilariously funny. Um, I was in disguise in a restaurant um, during a James Beard weekend. And I kind of, when I was at the, at the New York Times, I couldn't go to any of those events because you don't want to be around chefs. And I'd kind of forgotten that every chef in America would be in town. And I was at, <laughs> I was at the What's Happening new restaurant. And um, I was, at the moment dressed as my mother, um, wearing, you know, a a short white wig and silver wig. And I had my mother's clothing and I did look remarkably like my mother. And, um, Wolfgang Puck and Barbara Lazaroff came in and they had known my mother because I did a long piece about the opening of Chinois, um, before I was a critic. And, um, Barbara saw me and burst out laughing. (laughs) And then as every chef came into the restaurant, she would go up and whisper in their ear. And they would parade in front of the rest of of my table, looking, you know, looking at me and bursting into laughter. And it was really (laughs) embarrassing. And then the last person who came into the restaurant was Julia. And Barbara went up and whispered in her ear, 
And Julia, from across the room, said in her unmistakable Julia voice, very loud, there's Ruth Rachel in a wig. (laughs) And the entire restaurant turned around and looked at me. And I was so mortified. I didn't know what to do. (laughs) I didn't know if I should just take the wig off, crawl under the table. And instead, I just nodded at her and smiled. And she nodded back at me and went and sat down at her table. (laughs) (laughs) And were were you dining by yourself or did you have a companion? No, I had a group of people with me. Oh, okay. Uh, well, that at least at least you had some cover. Oh, yes, I, w- uh, I was hoping maybe if you were alone, Julia invited just invited you to join her day. No, no, no. I was with like I think four other people, so we were. Um, I I did have people to um, sort of close in around me. <laughs> <laughs> that, well, that does sound like a very memorable moment. Possibly, I, I, I wish someone had asked Julia about that moment. I would have thought she would have remembered it too. <laughs> she did have well, a very carrying voice. Yes. No, I I, full, I was anticipating that, that it would be Julia who would be the one to just shout across the room that, uh, of, of her finding. No, no discretion there. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for sharing that very intimate and memorable moment and for being with us today. Thank you. It was great talking to you. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to follow us on social media. Our handles are at Julia Child on Facebook at Julia Child Foundation, all one word on Instagram, and at Julia Child JCF on Twitter. My Twitter handle is at T Shulkin, T S C H U L K I N. Ruth Reichel's latest memoir is Save Me the Plums, a Random House hardcover, on sale April 2nd, 2019. Find it or ask for it at your favorite online or bricks and mortar bookseller. You can catch up with Ruth on her book tour. The schedule is on ruthreichel.com forward slash appearances. And Reichel is R-E-I-C-H-L. If you don't meet up with her there, it's at Ruth Reichel Books on Facebook, at Ruth.Reichel on Instagram, and at Ruth Reichel on Twitter, where you can get regular doses of her Bon Mo descriptions. The Julia Child audio clip from The French Chef is used with permission from our friends at WGBH. Thanks to my co-producer of the Foundation, Lauren Salkeld, and our sound engineer at Heritage Radio Network, Matt Patterson. Our theme song is New French Horn by Novi Valtorni. Please give us a review. It really helps new listeners discover the show. We're on the air on Heritage Radio Network on Thursdays at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific, with downloads available soon after, wherever you find your podcasts. We look forward to bringing you back into the Foundation's world next time on Inside Julia's Kitchen. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. And connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.